What is it? What is that in the air? Is that Stephen Kilby? That must mean we have the very first week in sports cars of 2020 for you, dear listener. Brought to you by Cooper Tires. Brought to you by the Justice Brothers. And brought to you by the Young Jedi from DailySportsCar.com. How you doing, Mr. Kilby? I'm doing fabulously, Marshall. It's the uh, start of a new decade, start of a new year. I'm genuinely really looking forward to this one. And I must say, before we go any further, the new logo for the podcast is astonishing. Well, I love it. I absolutely love it. It's my all-time favorite prototype. Uh, all-time favorite sports car, probably. And so, yeah, that's one of the cool things. It's my show. It'll be whatever I want it to be. Uh, and luckily, it's something that a, a number of people like. I also know that with you being a young pup, each New Year is a really exciting thing, especially a new decade. So I'm happy for you, uh, for some of us who've been on the planet a little bit longer. Not saying there's less excitement, but there's less newness to each new year. Uh, there comes a point where it starts to feel like a continuation. So that's not negative, just interesting uh, interesting difference here all right we have about an hour and a half period we're not going over we're not doing any we're holding fast we're going to try yeah, and yeah, set yeah. a precedent no i mean it we're going to set a precedent where at least for the first episode of the new year we're going to stick to our guns on a time limit it might explode and never happen again beginning in episode two of 2020 but today, we've got an hour and a half. We have four categories. IMSA, WEC, Asian Le Mans Series, European Le Mans Series, ACO, a category we lovingly call WECASM, Elms, ACO, I believe. Then we have general questions and the final bucket being fun. Normally, our co-host, Graham Goodwin, down in Australia, getting ready for, is it one hour of Bathurst? Two hours of Bathurst, some sort of endurance type race they do down there. So he's normally the selecta picking the categories. Since he's not here, does that fall to you as his comrade? No, it doesn't. It goes to me. So we're going to go with IMSA first, seeing as how they just completed their roar before the 24, the mandatory test ahead of the Rolex 24 Daytona coming here about a week and a half, two weeks. So Mr. Kilby, would you kindly... Load the clip with IMSA questions, aim it squarely at my big old fat head, and pull the trigger. Well, well I would say I'd be delighted, but you're not making it sound so glamorous. Um, we'll start off with uh, JTROC71. He, he gives us a question about Richard Westbrook and something he said. He said, around the time of Long Beach 2019, he and the Ford crew were convinced they were going to be in a Ford DPI in 2020. What were the stumbling blocks that shut down that deal? Was it strictly the DPI 2.0 regs? Well, Justin, we've actually covered this many, many times on this very show uh, throughout the 2019 season. So happy to provide a bit of a recap. We had a case where Ford was wanting to keep the momentum flowing. And there was absolute belief that a DPI was coming. This is something that was being developed with Multimatic. Now, when I say developed, do I mean they came up with a bespoke Ford DPI? No. As I understand it, Multimatic has had a 
template, if you want to put it that way, that could be used. Uh, obviously, Multimatic makes Mazda's RT24P, and I'm fairly aware that they have something that could become a twin-turbo V6-powered Ford DPI using the same architecture, just, again, ready to accept a different power plant, different body work, something that could have been produced not quickly, but uh, faster than, say, just starting from scratch. And the desire, as I understand it, was held within the highest levels of Ford, but there's also some questions about future technology and whether just pressing straight into a DPI program in 2020 was going to achieve marketing goals, technology goals, and so on. So as we documented, Justin, throughout uh, last year, this was a bit of a tug-of-war internally. There was, as Westy mentioned, early in the season, an absolute belief that the Ford GTs would go away and Ford DPIs would replace them. That soured a bit as we got towards Le Mans, and there was basically a complete belief by then, as we got into June, that nothing was going to happen, that the GTs were going away, and Ford would continue to speak with IMSA about its 2022 DPI 2.0 formula, one that offers hybridization, which is truly the thing that they started to hold up as a must-have. What moved from there was an interesting thing, where it seemed like everything that I was hearing was a lot of pushback in general around this Lamal time frame of, okay, we're not going DPI racing. 2022 could be the earliest. And then just following the race, Justin heard a really, really interesting thing from a couple of well-placed sources that said, hey, uh, someone with the last name Ford <laughs> who was at the 2019 24 Hours of Le Mans and in their garages told a couple of people, heck it, that's my replacement word for effort, heck it, we're coming back next year. We can't leave. We gotta stay. And so that became the another tipping point in this that we're in, we're out, we're in, we're out in the seesaw of in and out. Justin is just what we tracked uh, seemingly at least once or twice a month on the weekend sports cars. And despite that senior family member, uh, Ford executive saying, heck it. Uh, we're going to do it. I'm going to make it happen. That did not come to pass. And so I think you have both budget concerns, right? There was no budget for this. That was the, the ultimate death knell of the program. Despite a willingness, despite someone carrying the last name Ford saying, despite everything, dang it, I'm going to green light something, whether it's a DPI, whether it's Staying with the Ford GTs, the Ford name is not leaving the WeatherTech Sports Car Championship or the 24 Hours of Le Mans. We're going to stay in. The story that continued was, great, but where's the budget? And the budget never followed. The budget never arrived, and therefore 
what Westy mentioned, what others mentioned, uh, the firm belief that it was going to be coming back, Stephen. Um, ultimately, intent was not matched with dollars. And here we are heading into the Rolex 24 with no blue ovals in the big race. Well, the second question is on a slightly more positive topic. is from Nate Detweiler. He's, he wants to ask about Mazda. Because they've shown, again, they have speed at Daytona. Um, do you think the RT24P will finally be able to survive the full 24 hours? It's something that Mazda has not done in the post-merger era. I wish I could say yes, Nate. I don't doubt them for any specific reasons. It's not as if I know something that leads me to say, aha, this one item is the thing that will derail their plans. This is just the issue that they're going to have at 24-hour races, specifically independent from 12, 10, and 6-hour races in IMSA, and that is they have the smallest motor in the series, It has to make a phenomenal amount of horsepower to be competitive. And not only that, when you take that dynamic and put it into 24 hours of straight competition, the single thing that makes this the the most problematic for them, Nate, is they have to push harder than any of their rivals to be competitive. I don't mean their car isn't as good or engine isn't as good. What I mean is the twin-turbo V6 architecture of the Acura at 3.5 liters. It is a bigger motor, more metal, more stout, has more cylinders, which means each cylinder is being asked to make less horsepower in and of itself. So... We think of that five and a half liter Cadillac V8. All these motors make roughly the same horsepower. Just keep in mind that with this Mazda, the thing that has proven to be a challenge for it, as it appears Stephen has been lost here, but that's fine. Maybe he'll come back. Uh, Nate, the issue here is... Hello? Yes, you're back. You went away. You got to put more more coins in the internet machine there, Stephen. Um The issue here, Nate, which is just going to be a concern all along as we hear Stephen typing, is with this amount of power they have to make, they're at the upper end of their limits. That thing is being pushed so hard and so much harder than their rivals to run up front and be competitive for 24 hours. That's been the breaking point we've seen. I know I'm stating the obvious here, but... We've seen that over 10 hours, 12 hours, those motors can be super competitive. Not a huge, huge worry about getting that far. When you double that amount of time, double that 12 hours and make it 24, having to just crank out and crank and crank, and being at super high RPMs as well for so much of the lap, these are just the things, man, that make small four-cylinder engines give you the, uh, the middle finger at some point might say, well, hey, didn't, uh, as you mentioned, Stephen, with our new logo of the All-American Racers Eagle Mark III and its Toyota power plant that won the race overall 20-plus years ago? Yeah, it did. Very different times, though, in terms of rules. Uh, That 2.1-liter single-turbo four-cylinder, that was (laughs) made from scratch. 
That was a pure, purest of purebred racing motor. Really no limits on anything. And it was so stout. It was bulletproof. And there was a trillion dollars put into the development of it. I mean, it was a marvel of engineering. I'm not saying the Mazda engine manufactured by AER is not. It's just a very different time where there's not the same amount of freedom to make that kind of bulletproof uh, motor and or just simply the budget to spend that much to make it so. Can they get to victory lane at the Rolex 24? Man, I sure hope so. I think it'd be great for them. It'd be great to add to their legacy. You know, would it be great for Acura to get there? Of course, Cadillac's been there time and time again since the DPI formula started. That's going to be the fear, though is, okay, we've gotten past 12 hours, in theory, without any engine problems for the Mazdas. What's the next 12 going to be like? Uh, If you're a Mazda fan, honestly, that's when the clock starts. Once we get into the second half of the race, that's where, provided there are no issues beforehand, uh, I think Mazda fans will be crossing fingers and a variety of other digits. Shall we move on to Chris Ward's question? He's got a question about the Raw as well. He says, hope you and all the other listeners have had a wonderful holiday season. Uh, Thank you very much, Chris. He says, with all the Royal testing done, what are the largest takeaways, aside from the fact that Mazda is fast over a lap, that Lamborghini can't pass uh, pass, uh, technical inspections, and that GTE looks to be a toss-up, and that LMP2 has been given a new lease of life with the uh, amount of commitment? Thanks thanks to you all. Can't wait to watch the Rolex 24. Oh, well, that's really kind of you, Chris, but uh, I'll be watching it with you uh, from home. And young Mr. Kilby here, I guess you're going to have to just start stuffing your face and eating like a buffoon because you're going to be me at the Rolex 24 reporting for Racer. So looking forward to uh, to seeing how that pans out, you poor bastard. Um, <laughs> you're going to be able to hear you laughing. Ah, look at this fool over here. Uh, Chris, I mean, of all the takeaways maybe covering a little bit of ground that Jeff Brown and I did in our inside the sports car paddock episode from Monday was impressed by and large with BOP. There was, there weren't many outliers. The only one that stood out to me was in GTD with Mercedes. They seem to be a little bit out to lunch, but at the same time also have to keep in mind that there aren't a ton of Mercs in the class and the new I guess leading entry, same old leading entry, the one from Rally Motorsports, does have an all new driver rotation. So that could be a part of the explanation there. In terms of just overall takeaways, I have to admit, man, it felt a little bit rinse, wash, and repeat. Uh, I was so happy to see Reese play the role of spoiler, as they often do. As an independent team in GT line with their Ferrari, I think just the general note was 2020 looks a lot like 2019 in terms of just themes and pace and everything else. Obviously, the fewer cars, which we're going to talk about more here, but nothing really jumped out as crazy. Uh, wished the Heart of Racing team the, with their new twin turbo V8 Aston Martin Vantage GT3, wished they had been able to turn more laps get in some more learning with a brand new car, but must admit, man, there was nothing that really jumped out as crazy. I think this just feels like a resumption of last year's race 
in so many ways with BOP appearing to be a little bit closer than it was. So if that's the case, then should be a, a fun thing to watch. Do you chuckle a little bit, Marshall, when you read on the internet, like, uh, you know, somebody from one of the, the big manufacturers has gone and spoken to a media member and they've published a story saying, well, the BOP's out and we're nowhere, we're, we're having a terrible time, and then they go out and qualifying and do really, really well. Do you enjoy that? I enjoy that a little bit. Oh, it's a rite of passage every year. I mean, if you don't, I mean, that's the thing. This is the the grand lie that has to be, it doesn't have to be told, but it has to be told, right? Oh, my God. It's the the billionaires complaining they're no longer trillionaires scenario where you, oh, my God, I'm so poor. Oh, I mean, how do you expect me to survive kind of thing? And you're sitting here going, uh, you're either a tenth off of being fastest or you're actually fastest, but you're whinging at how bad and slow and affected your car is by BOP, and you're only fastest because everyone else is trying to game the system and stepping back. And really, if they all tried harder, boy, the the hard times that you've been subjected to would really be revealed. Again, it's if you hate politics, I can't imagine you're a fan of sports car racing series where BOP is employed because it's just part of it. It is everything that I see on a daily basis in American government, right? Uh, The Republican from whatever state comes out and says everybody on the left is the worst and they're the source of all ills and evil. And then the Democrat comes out and says all the people on the right, the worst, and the world's going to explode because of them. And it's just, it's the same old lie day after day. Except for these, I would hope, Stephen, compared to government and and politicians, these are actually somewhat amusing. So I would say more. Maybe all right. We just we just we just got it. We need your input, dear listeners, on an award. We need to come up with the weekend sports cars best bullshit BOP excuse. Some, we're going to hand it out. The, the the driver, the team owner, the manufacturer rep, the person who has the best complaint rooted in absolutely zero truth or reality, we, we're going to have to hand out this award. And it might be a race by race. I don't know. Uh, but the best BOP, bull, hashtag best BOP bullshit award for sure. That's a new The Week in Sports Cars award that we're going to have to give away. But truly, you guys are going to have to help us and say, oh, this press release, Pruitt, or this person on TV. Let us know. Flag it uh, and and hit us with this on social media, and we will be sure to hand those out going forward. Very quick question, Marshall, on the topic of this, okay? Um, You've had experience, obviously, running race cars and being embedded in race teams. If you're a DPR manufacturer and and like a head of a program, do you go ahead and tell your drivers like we know they do to go and whinge about BOP? Do you play the politics game? Or if you were at the top of a program, would you go, nah, we don't need it? All depends. I mean, if I'm, here's the thing. If you are the one who has received the uh, BOP baton of favor and you're the one that's gotten lucky for this race or a couple of races through BOP, what do you do? You still have to complain. Those, that's the stuff that I love the most, where you go, 
I just read the new BOP tables that were published by IMSA, ACO, SRO, whatever. And clearly, the car model X is going to whoop everyone's butt at the next race. And it invariably does. But during that event, you get still get people competing with that car or from that manufacturer. Oh, my God, did you see what they did to us? They gave us more horsepower and took away weight. I mean, are they crazy? What are they trying to destroy our season? And you're looking around going, are you on crack? What? The? But again, <laughs> it's salesman, saleswomanship, salespersonship. That's the game that gets played. Even when you've been handed the advantage, you have to complain. Are they try Just take me out back and shoot me. I mean, just end my life. Uh, we're done. Uh, that's the way it gets played. So I hate to say it, but for those who opt in and compete in BOP series, if you aren't politicking, you aren't doing your job. The, the final quick note here on the IMSA side, and I don't know if this has changed under the new presidency, but I do know that while Scott Atherton was president, he specifically sent down a mandate last year that said you will be fined if you talk about, complain about BOP publicly. And so there was a point, I think it was somewhat early in the year, where it really wasn't spoken of much, if at all. And if those, for those who did kind of crack the door open, they would often couch it with, oh, I can't, I don't want to, I can't say too much. I don't want to get fined. Uh, so I don't know if John Doonan is going to continue that or do something like that. But uh, there's a very real possibility that uh, this thing could continue. Do you agree with that sort of thing? I mean, I've seen series in the past that have like regulate, put in regulations that you can't criticize a series publicly. No, I think it's complete it's, garbage. It's, it's, yeah, I was it, it's, say it. I mean, it's how's like, this? Come on, guys. It'd be like me saying, well, you can't listen to my show uh, if you say I'm fat or stupid or whatever else. You go, well, you do realize that if you don't want to give folks things to criticize, remove those things that would warrant criticism. Of course, there's always going to be the person who complains about something, even when seemingly there's no reason, a la the BOP complaint when you have an advantage. But still, this to me just seems to be an item where you go, hey, if the folks who are handling this part of your regulations or, or if race control is making a series of bad decisions, well, saying that they're making bad decisions, I don't think that's out of the the flavor of what should be allowed in the sport make better decisions just like when drive i mean how's this it should then be illegal to criticize drivers if so and so forgets to use the brake pedal and blows out four cars entering turn one and you know just a complete brain fart or miscalculation or lack of talent again anything that says oh you can't be critical you know, look, don't be nasty. Don't be dumb about it. But if there's a true and warranted reason to say something, it should be, you know, we should all be trying to do a better job of whatever it is that we do so that hopefully folks have fewer, fewer negative things to hurl our way, I guess. Maybe. Kind of, sort of. <laughs> Preach it. Preach it. Let's move on. Let's move on to the next question, which is from Ricky Zagata. He says, Marshall, how soon will we see the Toyota Supra GT4 race in the U.S.? Well, I'm going to throw this 
answer to you because you have the answer. And while you're answering it, I'm going to go run and make my wife some breakfast because she just sent me a little text saying, hey, idiot, make me some breakfast. So answer away, and I'll be back as soon as I can. So if there are more questions, then answer them as if I was the idiot responding. Okay. Um, So, Ricky, uh, at the end of last year, um, I got the wonderful opportunity from the guys at, at Toyota to make the trip to Cologne to see the facility where they service the hypercar, uh, well, they will service the hypercar, apologies, where they currently service the TS-50s, um, uh, just the full works. They do some car servicing there, but it's, it's the main development plant for Toyota, uh, Gazoo Racing and Toyota's motorsport operation. And on that trip, I got to sit down with the man himself, Emanuele Battista, who's head of the GT4 program. We had a long conversation, and you can read the entire conversation or much of it uh, on Daily Sports Cars. Quick plug there. It's a three-part series, which has gone up in the last week or so um, on my trip to Cologne. And the first one was about the Supra specifically. So the Toyota Supra GT4 will compete in the USA a year. So the plan from Toyota's side, is that they will begin in Europe. Uh, they want to get a foothold into that marketplace um, and get some customers racing there first before they begin to, to move to Asia and North America. There's still plenty of work that needs to be done in terms of logistics and how they produce the cars, how they support customers in other markets at the moment. Um, but their primary focus at the moment is to uh, get the European side of things sorted. But their plan is towards the end of this year that we will see some Super GT4s potentially race in North America. The big thing for them is obviously, can they get customers? It's It would be easy to think, you know, Toyota, huge, huge company, would just throw a load of work support at customer teams and get the cars out racing. It's, it's obviously not as simple as that because there are budget restraints to all these things. Um, we've heard of a few a few potential opportunities in Europe for, for teams to be out racing. There was a, a time, the belief that there would be one racing in the UK, this season in the British GT Championship, but um, as far as I'm aware, that it will not come to pass as it stands. Um, but it is a tough marketplace, and they they understand that it's a very tough marketplace because um, pretty much everybody else in that marketplace has already had years of competition. So it may take a little bit of time to get off the ground. It may be that you don't see one until 2021 uh, racing in the US because it, it, it just takes time to, to get everything set up. But the target is later this year. So, shall we move on to another question then while Marshall goes and makes breakfast, which is really weird considering I'm about to cook dinner. Uh, this is an interesting one from Joshua Joshua Ponce. He says, gentlemen, happy new year. It's sad to me that this year's Rolex 24 is going to have the least amount of cars on the grid in over 15 years, maybe longer than that. Um, I wonder what can be done from IMSA to help bring the grid size back up to 58-ish cars for next year. Should IMSA do invites from other FIA and ACO series like they do for Le Mans? Uh, I'd just like to see the Rolex 24 grid have a much larger grid than than it, as it stands with the other long-durance races from around the world. This is a really interesting question. Um, there's certainly a desire from plenty of teams from Europe to do the Rolex 24, and I think since, since uh, the merger and since we've got into the DPI era, there's definitely... Uh, a sort of uptick in in interest from teams in like the European Le Mans series and even the WC to go and do that race um, in January because it's a nice time of year from the calendar 
And it has got a lot more prominence now to those of us in Europe. It gets a lot more coverage, has a lot more of an international prestige at the moment. So there are always, when me and Graham um, are in the LMS paddock and we talk to teams about what they want to do in the, the next year or two, doing the Rolex 24 is something that often comes up. And that's not just prototype teams, that's GT GTs as well. Plenty of gentlemen drivers want to do it. Uh, they love the, the idea. Giving also invites is an interesting one. Whether whether you know the ACO would ever start giving up giving automatic invitations for winning titles or or giving an award each year, which gives you a place at the Rolex Twenty Four. In theory, it sounds like a great idea, but the, but the problem is, I guess, is that the demand isn't so high. So it, because it's not an oversubscribed grid, it's it's not probably as valuable as a, as an auto invite to the Le Mans Twenty Four Hours. Uh, the the main the main draw with getting the auto invitations to Le Mans 24 hours, which is why we're seeing things like the Asian Le Mans series take off, why we're seeing a huge LMP2 grid in the LMS, um, and people desperate in any way they can to get auto entries is because Le Mans is now oversubscribed. They keep gradually increasing the, the maximum amount of cars we can have on the grid, and yet there still seems to be a reserve list that's so long that people end up dropping off of it very quickly because they know they're not going not gonna to be able to do it. Logistically, you know, the Rolex 24 is a, is an easier race to do in a sense that you can get a program off the ground closer to the time when it comes to things like accommodation um, and transport than the Le Mans 24 hours. The biggest issue, um, as far as I'm aware from the conversations I have with, with teams and drivers, is when it comes to Le Mans, knowing as early as possible is a huge advantage because Le Mans is one of those um places where there isn't that much in the way of accommodation um especially when it gets closer to the to the time of the race because there are so many fans that go there so it's kind of like gold dust if you know six months in advance you can save a lot of money on preparing for it so it is a really uh, it's a really tough call if you get a late invitation which is why it was a big frustration for united all sports when we got very close to them on last year and richard dean was was talking about the fact that um, you know it's all well and good having two entries now and getting one late, but we've got all of a sudden got a lot of problems on our hands to make sure that we can actually get everybody there. Um, so that's why it's 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 a more it's a more um, it's a more interesting prospect to have plenty of places to fight for those auto invites. Marshall, are you back with us? Indeed, I am. We're just talking about Joshua Ponce's question, which is about potential for yep. boosting the grid at the Rolex 24 and potential of auto invites being given out to the Rolex 24. Um, and my, my opinion is that because it's not an oversubscribed race, it's not necessarily as important to have automatic entries, and that's not going to build the grid up maybe as much as, as people would like. I actually think it could. Uh, I think yeah. They're, they're... Yeah, and the thing is, is if that is going to become... The international race it once kind of vaguely sort of was, it would be something for them to consider. It's a really, I love that question, Josh, just because it's, when we have a situation where IMSA, Grand Am, whatever, has been a raging success, there's been no need for auto invites. But I would say that there certainly should be a place in the mindset of IMSA that even if we get another 20 plus cars coming to the Rolex 24 and we're more or less at full subscription. There should still be a couple of seats made available, entries made available for 
international entrants to come and join. So I do like the idea. Would just mm-hmm. say that they're pretty good at forecasting who's coming, who's not coming. Would say that in years like this, uh, it would certainly be something where they might be able to extend more of those. I don't know if those would be public, uh, at least until they were accepted. That could be the, the one hang up. What you don't want to do, obviously, when you are struggling for overall car count is to extend auto invites or extend invites and then have those declined. Uh, It just further weakens your place in the industry, gives the impression, could be an accurate impression, too, that the product you're offering is not as valuable as it once was. Diminished car count certainly hints hints to that. But having folks actually say, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. Um, that only compounds the problem. The problem's too, twofold at the moment, isn't it, right? It's, it's cost, it's how expensive the championship and that race in particular is, and it's the fact that we were at a point in the DPI regulations where we, we're, we're not going to really get anybody new coming in because it's, it's, it's too soon until the new regulations come in. Correct, and I'm, my mindset's expanded just a little bit further, thinking Hunkos Racing has their Cadillac, which nobody is running, uh, nobody has bought. Could that be something that others either buy or lease, hire that team in LMP2? We know that Bobby Urgle is trying drastically to fill the seat in his second Areca right now to put that on the grid. Could that be leased by a team? Uh, not so much on the GTLM front, but definitely on the GTD front, many teams with plenty of cars to potentially lease those out, run those for teams just as some of our teams do and have done for many years, Stephen, heading to Le Mans. No, I'm not going to pack up everything we own and ship it across the Atlantic. We have struck a deal with Team X, and uh, they are going. we're effectively going to step in, bring our drivers, bring an engineer, maybe bring a strategist, whatever it is. But it's smarter and actually cheaper and less of a headache for us to lease slash hire a team on that domestic front to really facilitate the majority of what we do at this major, major event. So just think more along those lines. Hey, Asian Le Mans series team. Hey, ELMS team here, a variety of numbers of team owners. You might consider calling depending on what class you might want to race in. Uh, You know, if you get an auto invite, having won something of importance in a GTEM class, then does that mean you have to run a GTEM? I wouldn't say so necessarily, but wouldn't be hard for IMSA to say, hey, if you have an interest, we can smooth the way for you to come do this. Here's a variety of names if you don't want to ship and spend the money to do all that. And some good folks who will put a car on the grid for you. Hello, hello. Do we still have Steven? We might not. Man, we're going to get you a better interweb connection. Maybe? Should I just sing for the rest of the show? Springtime for Hitler and Germany. Hey, he's back, boys and girls. Well, Marshall, my God, you're here. Technical difficulties, (laughs) I tell you what. What happens when you've got fiber optic 90 meg broadband? It still doesn't work. Well, you you cheaped out and should have gone with 100. Um, never give a hundred percent on this show. Um, let's move on to another question that is about cost from Sean Romig. 
he says in recent episodes, you've said that IMSA costs have risen to levels nearly 100% of what they were five years ago um, on roughly the same race calendar. What specifically has caused this dramatic increase? Well, we have cars that are only getting faster and harder to extract speed from uh, for those that have been around for a little while. So the cost to explore and capture that speed and ends up coming with a much bigger bill in off-track testing. So that's one. A lot of, lot of money being spent in R&D, uh, everything from CFD to shaker rigs to damper programs to on and on and on. So that's one thing that happens. Overall competitiveness in DPI and GTD continue to rise. So you go and hire... Bigger, better engineers, sharper crew, just across the board, this is what tends to happen. If you have a super basic formula, like the old Daytona prototypes, tube frame donkeys, cars that were old tech when they were brand new, super (laughs) basic. I realize there was a flat six portion there, but more or less just five liter V8s making about 500 horsepower did not tax those motors in any way. No reliability issues, no technology, no turbos, no this, no that for the majority of the formula. But bottom line, you had a, had a concept that was simply about racing. Wasn't about the cars, super cheap to buy, super cheap to run, and the cost to do so really reflected what you had to race. With what we have now, going and buying a GT3 Ferrari 488, we were talking, you know, $700,000, $800,000. It's crazy, crazy to race in a Pro-Am class. Uh, you think about the support package that, many of those manufacturers, if not all the manufacturers offer that. And I'm not talking spare parts and pieces. Those are also brutal uh, on the price tag, but technical support, R and D engineering, yada, 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 though that that you don't get that when you buy the car, that's a separate price tag every year. Uh, Am I correct, Marshall, that the actual entry fee for IMSA has gone up a huge amount? Because I was speaking to somebody from a major manufacturer who said when they saw the price of entering cars and they paying the manufacturer entry fee, their jaws hit the floor. I have not honestly taken a look. Um, I don't believe it was crazy expensive before. So if it does, has been dialed up, um, I would say that... You know, we don't have, uh, how's this? It wasn't crazy expensive beforehand. Therefore, even if there has been an increase, I can't imagine it's become truly insane, but I'm sure that's gone up as well. Um, If you think about on the manufacturer front, they're also obligated to spending up to a million dollars a year on that marketing buy uh, in order to be allowed to compete. It's just something where nothing about going racing has become cheaper. 
would also say that if we're talking what's different old formula, new formula, meaning Grand Am coming to an end and this IMSA series coming together, which you've mentioned recently, it was and has been the, quote, best of both worlds, best of the ALMS calendar, best of the Grand Am calendar. That is what we do. Well, we now have, (laughs) we once had ALMS with 12 hours of Sebring, Petit Le Mans. It had a 12-hour and a 10-hour endurance race. Those were their two Enduros. You had Grand Am with the Rolex 24, six hours at the Glen. That was theirs. Their two Enduros. We've now created this amazing calendar with four total Enduros. (laughs) Uh, It's just really expensive to play. So you take the cars becoming more expensive, more competitive, the cost to make them competitive going up on an annual basis. Not only the technical side, but the staffing side, the technical support packages, uh, hell, fuel (laughs) to send the trucks back and forth from California to Florida to here to there. That's gone up. I mean, it's, it's a daunting thing. And I know we want to get to a lot more questions here, not just in IMSA, but also get over to WEC in that world and others. So I'll, I'll park this here, but... Just keep in mind that one of the things that racing series do on a, on a unfortunately infrequent basis, Stephen, is scale themselves to fit the economic times they're in in a rapid manner. Sometimes it takes a series a couple of years to go, oh, boy, we keep trending downward and downward and downward. Maybe we should think about modifying something we do on a, you know, big picture level the smarter play which i don't know why it does not happen on a more regular basis is huh i'm pulling all of our teams collectively i'm hearing it's harder to find money harder to find paying drivers budgets are growing and man we're we're worried this signal is getting louder we as a series need to make some adjustments in imsa's case they announce at Road America every year in, what, July-ish, August or so, their state of the series, which comes with the announcement of the following year's calendar. It's more or less the same tracks year after year. We could tell you basically within a week of where every 2021 race will be, when, where, what track, etc. That consistency is great. What could be considered here is if this cost increase and entry decrease dynamic continues need to take a race or two off the calendar man Uh, i know these are all beloved children and you don't want (laughs) to cut any of them loose but if folks are having a hard time coming up the money to go race you can't tell them to go get new cars because that costs money uh, there's not a lot of stuff you can do that that's reasonable or as easy as saying, I realize track that we have a contract, but we are going to, in the interest of saving our series and protecting our entrance, we're going to have to be a little bit more flexible. Uh, we're going to take a year. We need to take a year off. Maybe we can do a doubleheader the following year if things improve. But from a, a sanctioning agreement and event hosting contract basis, Stephen, IMSA and any other series facing this dynamic would be really wise instead of doing a three-year deal to do 
a two-year deal, a one-year deal with a one-year option following, all to give themselves the flexibility to say, I know that we had 10 races for your IMSA class last year. All the inputs we're getting says we need to break it down to eight so people can actually afford to go racing. And if things improve, you know, maybe two years from now, we'll be up to 12 races. But we are trying to create the ability to make dynamic changes swiftly that's in our series best interest for survival. Um, I don't know if that mindset uh, is as strong as I think it should be. It's the same in the WC. We have the same conversations all the time about whether we should add extra races or take them off. And it, and it is a really tough decision, isn't it? It's never easy to just add and take away races because there's so many factors at play. Um, well, why don't we uh, Why don't we pick a couple more, one or two, yeah. maybe, and then pick one or two of your favorites of the remaining in IMSA, and then we're going to move on to your category. And for okay. those who did not get their IMSA question posed and you would like it to be posed, do as we ask, which is fire it back in again, send it in again for next week's episode. And in that process, say, hey, Pruitt, you dummy, would you answer it this time? Because you didn't last week. Mm. Uh, I'm going to go with the Carl Hall question about the Riley Multimatic LMP2, because it is exciting to have a a chassis that we really don't see very often racing LMP2 um, out there. It says, after the Riley Multimatic LMP2 car crashed during the roll with James Davison at the wheel, I asked Bill Riley if they had any spare his reply was that I've been divorced from this LMP2, LMP2 program since April 17th. Is there no hope for the Riley Multimatic LMP2, or should I just say Multimatic now? It was fascinating seeing it resurrected, but I, but I hope um, that it has some hope despite its lack of development. That was a mouthful or something like that. Yep. Um, it was. So, yes, uh, indeed, the... Riley and Multimatic relationship ended very swiftly with this Mark 30 chassis and Multimatic took it over in its entirety. So that has been the case. I do love the fact though that you asked Bill Riley, Hey, you got any spares for the car to which he said, uh, no. Uh, and I love Bill. So that's pretty funny. Um, yeah, there is not hope for the, the Riley Multimatic Mark 30 chassis as an LMP two solution in the current LMP2 rule set era time frame, whatever you want to call it. This formula, which we expect to be revised here in a couple of years and, you know, tender going out to see, not Tinder, Stephen, tender, um, tender go out to see whether it's the same constructors or more or less, whatever, to build the next spec LMP2 cars. I would think Multimatic would be on that list. But until we get to that point, there's just enough deficiencies with this vehicle as a LMP2 solution that it's just not going to do anything. It's not going to go anywhere. It's not going to be competitive. Maybe barring Long Beach and Detroit, short-ish tracks, uh, slowish tracks, where maximum downforce and drag, uh, a high drag, is actually not a real penalty. There are two longish, stra- oh, yeah, there are two longish straights at both of those street courses on the IMSA calendar where there could be a bit of an aerodynamic penalty. But the Riley slash Multimatic 
And yeah, you can just call it a Multimatic. Um, it should excel there or in those two spots. But anytime we're talking about a circuit where sustained high speeds or its average speed, corner speed tends to be mid-range to upper mid-range uh, in the gears, that's where it's going to suffer. So there's just some inherent deficiencies that the Multimatic has tried to fix, tried to improve, but you have to have multiple customers out there to service before you chuck a ton of money into it, right, Stephen? It'd be silly for them to spend millions so that maybe somebody uses it. (laughs) Um, And then you also need multiple teams providing really quality feedback so you can further refine the car. That hasn't happened. So since it was tried briefly in 2017, uh, what I think Spirit of Daytona was the one that came to mind running it. Um, there just really hasn't been much. So good on Rick Ware. I mean, I know that what the bar Brian Adler's Alders bar one motorsports team ran it at the 24 in, was it 2018, Stephen? I think. Yeah, um, I think that sounds right. With about 42 drivers in it. And, you know, it was just a brick uh, as we expected it to be. And so, Good on Rick Ware for getting a hold of one and using it, but yeah, there's there's no chance that car is going to do anything competitively, possibly outside of the uh, short races on IMSA's two street courses. Want me to ask a second one? Sure. Go for it. Okay. So, Ed Horace says, what happens to Accurate Penske after this season isn't 2020 the last of the of free seasons? Sounded to me like Kat let some big news out of the bag when she indicated that Shank might get a DPI for 2021, assumed to be inaccurate. Well, they are coming up on the start and, and I guess a pending finish of their three-year contract with Acura. I would expect it to continue based on everything I have heard, unless the only thing I would imagine might derail that is if Honda chooses to enter NASCAR, which is a situation that has been presented as a possibility. And in that scenario, axing its IndyCar and sports car programs were mentioned as things they might have to do in order to portion the correct amount of staff and budget to make that happen. So I think that might be the, the guiding light here, Ed, depending on what the mothership wants to do with its future motorsports strategies. Um, I think that could be the only thing to possibly derail a continuation, a new contract being extended to team Penske. I do know that Acura is In all of the DPI 2.0 conversations, I am aware that they have an absolute interest in continuing in DPI in this new formula. I'm aware that they have an interest and intend to continue in IndyCar when its new formula arrives in 2022. So unless someone well above the folks at Honda Performance Development uh, say, nope, You cannot do that anymore because we're taking all your money and all your people and we're going to make you play NASCAR. I would expect things to continue without interruption on the Team Penske side. Would say that what Kat mentioned as a possibility with Shank uh, for 2021 with a uh, Acura Air X05 could 
again, I could haven't spoke with Mike about it, had heard that it heard rumors that there was something along those lines, uh, possibly happening, but I would not say that something happening with shank would be at the exclusion of team Penske. I'd say we might be talking more about the one thing we've known for sure all along during these, this three year contract, Steven, which is there's a, uh, no compete, non-compete clause. It is straight up accurate team Penske period. No privateer cars being sold. No secondary teams, hundred percent focus one team, the end of this contract. That would be the first time where Acura would be able to invite others into the family. So I think that might be more of what Kat was alluding to compared to, aha, it's leaving and heading over to someone else. And with that, we are D-U-N done with IMSA. Time for me to get the slingshot ready and see if I can lob it as far as the U.K. from California. Let's go here my man mr are you ready by the way are you ready oh, i've never been more ready today well today that's a, that's a good <laughs> that's a great delineation here we're gonna go to adam smith it says with all this convergence talk between imsa and the aco i'm curious if the two do not reach an agreement would the aco attempt to revive an alms type series to run hypercars in the north american market Man, you're the big picture guy this week, Adam. Highly unlikely, surely. I mean, that would be a... I mean, if it happened, that would be quite a news story, wouldn't it, Marshall? That There's so much in that if they if they decided to do it. One, it would step all over him's as toes, and that would not go down well. Two, the budgets of, of doing a, a championship in America, and they would have to expect that the teams that are doing the WC hypercar-wise, would at least do some of them because it's not like all of a sudden you're going to get a heap of manufacturers to do a separate American-based hypercar championship. The big problem at the moment is finding potential manufacturers and boutique manufacturers and smaller privateer teams to actually commit to this class. They would be crazy to start up another championship, in my opinion, um, with the WC you know, not exactly covered in entries uh we're looking at you know a handful for year one a little bit more into year into year two into year three at the moment um i i can't see it happening i'm sure you feel the same marshall unless i've missed something completely well what do you need in north america when the series formerly known as world challenge is struggling for entries in its bigger and costlier classes and imsa's struggling for entries across all but one of its four WeatherTech sports car championship classes, you bring in another championship. Absolutely. I mean, you know, uh, why not? I love the idea. Obviously, Adam, it would require those hypercar manufacturers to be the financial engine behind such a thing. So, yeah, we're going to invest zillions to have our uh, dedicated North American series. The FIA would probably have to sign off on that, so that could be an interesting one. Um would say this if convergence does not happen then i'll be surprised but it just means that things continue the way they are on the prototype level what i would really enjoy to hear about is a wider topic of convergence 
hey, so what if GT racing was something that we also included in these convergence talks? Over here, at least, GTE slash GTLM, it's teetering, right, Stephen? One more manufacturer departs, we're in a really Mm -hmm. sad way. Obviously, in the WC, a little bit better, maybe, but not crazy. Uh, We're using GT3, where the WC is not, and it's actually IMSA's most populated class. And we know that some sort of future GT direction is needed to be defined as well to go with prototype direction. But uh, yeah, I know that you have to figure out, you got to start somewhere. I would just, it'd be pretty cool if they were saying, you know, let's not just do one at a time. Let's actually look at the overall landscape and see how we might streamline what we're doing altogether, both GT and prototypes. So, um, yeah, uh, I, I can't see this happen either. Uh, let's see. Let's go to Joshua Ponce is back. Josh, as I sent this one in for the last call of questions in 2019, uh, but it wasn't read. It says, okay, fellas, where's the story that Christoph Bushu is partnering up with an unknown team and manufacturer for hypercar with his team title sponsor, Bushu's Hammer Emporium? Only seems fitting that he enter and cause all kinds of chaos in the first year of the new rules. It's a great point. Uh, uh, if anything, I put that full blame on you, Kilby. Why haven't you been chasing oh, down? Really? Yeah. I mean, you had a French oh. girlfriend, didn't you? Don't you like have just carte blanche in France? Shouldn't you be able to go to the Bouchou household, knock on the door and get the full story and post it? Yeah. And use my really bad, broken French in an English accent to seal the deal. So I'm, sh- I'm sure Christophe Bouchou would be all up for that. Let's go to Don Gregory who says, aside from, Jim Glickenhaus, do you see any other boutique manufacturers that might enter hypercar in the next few years? It's difficult, and we'll talk about this a lot more when we get through to some of the other questions about hypercar news. Uh, At the moment, as it stands, it's difficult to see anybody coming forward, but there are always people looking at it. We know, for instance, Koenigsegg have have looked at it. TBR threw some money at Rebellion at one point was said they were going to do GTE. That hasn't really come to much aside from a sticker on a car. Could they look at it? Yeah, unlikely, but we would like to see it, of course. Um, there's also Brabham, who are, have just announced, I think, that they're doing a full season of Brick Car with the BT62. We certainly know that they, they're probably the closest of all the, all the manufacturers that haven't come forward. Um in the fact that they they have a little bit more of a vision and a bit more of a platform forming, but the problem with 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 their situation is that they genuinely don't know what they want to do, and I think they're just sitting around and looking at GTE and looking at hypercar and seeing which is the best option for them. But could I see them putting the budget together for a full hypercar program? It'd be it, I'd be not surprised, but I would be you know I'd be in full support of of what would be an incredibly ambitious program for for Brabham but aside from that we're we're not hearing too much at the minute go to James Counter if there is convergence and assuming the Sebring 1000 miles WC event continues would you foresee teams and manufacturers entering a third car as maybe a Lamal warm up this is a little bit like the spa six hours in whichever series they're not a full season entrant in so huh Maybe this is a bigger question, though. If we do converge, what happens at Sebring? Mm, 
well, we've seen it before, haven't we, Marshall, when the WC came along and raced in the uh, Super 12 Hours. That went really well. The ILMC. People who were there. Yes. Yeah, the ILMC. Of course it was the ILMC. Of course it was. Um, well, and didn't it do the first year of WC as well? I believe 2012. so. I believe so, yeah. yes. I've heard, it, I've heard it wasn't the best race meeting on the planet, but I wasn't there. Um, <sighs> I've just, I continue <laughs> to suggest that they add a mezzanine level in the paddock. Just add a second story, and it just make it a little easier, a little less packed. But uh, yeah, uh, do you mean they'll soundproof the media room at least? Because <laughs> last I've, year it was like being at a rock concert trying to write a novel. Yeah, I, I remember I, I was actually monitoring it, and with cars on track, it was I think eighty, no ninety four to ninety six decibels is the peak that I saw. Which again, if you're trackside, you might be saying, "Well, what are you complaining about?" Well. I get that. It's imagine sitting tenth row at a really loud rock concert in an arena, and then trying to write thousands of words and have coherent thought while people are going the whole time. It's a bit of a challenge. It's also why you don't see uh, rock reporters sitting in the crowd at rock and roll shows <laughs> writing their stories because uh yes it, it's yes it's why yeah. you don't see that many people reporting from war zones in the middle of being bombed you go yeah we're gonna step back a little bit where it's maybe a little more peaceful so again not trying to whinge here necessarily but yeah uh i do recall the best part was seeing then IMSA president Scott Atherton saying, hey, could you come come visit me in the uh, media center here at some point in time today? So yeah, sure, why? So I'll, I'll just let me know if you have a moment. Uh, he's all right, well, you know, I'll pop by later. He popped in, and uh, I just started trying to talk to him in a normal voice, and he couldn't hear me very well. <laughs> so, so this is why I kind of just want to bring your attention to your temporary barn you've placed here uh you know inside the final corner um it's just not that conducive and then they would hold press conferences too Stephen, where it was pretty much the huh huh could you speak huh could you excuse me so you say that again could you talk louder it was comical so the and the thing is the schedule was so packed there was only about five minutes of the whole week where there wasn't a car on track yeah, and so it just got to the point where we'd get some of the you know really nice press officers from whichever team coming over saying, "Oh, or manufacturing, oh, we're about to have a press conference. Would you know? Would you care to join us?" And I just say, "No, I mean, thanks." So I'll grab whomever afterwards because sitting there being watching lips move, but hearing, row, row, you know, it, it, it that was that was the soundtrack. So I don't know if words were spoken, but uh, maybe they're just doing race car impressions. So. Anyways, I don't know how we got there, but uh, there we go. Uh, let's see. We've got a couple questions here from our man, Stathis Coco. Uh, any news about Hypercar? That's a great general open. WC hinted, quote, who will commit next? And Michelin said they hope to have a Hypercar uh, to test before Toda and AMR. Any more news after Coda on that matter? And Stathis also says, what's going on with LMP2 regs? Next gen with new and possibly more constructors? Uh, there we go. And when? So Stathis wants to know everything about hypercar and LMP2. What's coming out and when and why? Go. You've okay. got 12 seconds. So, right. Okay. Uh, so I'll go through everything I know. So I, I wrote a piece very recently about Toyota's current position from my trip to Cologne. Uh, they're on track to get the two cars ready for Silverstone. 
some of that car in terms of design development is already complete some of it is uh not quite there yet because the regulations changed have changed slightly in recent months um and they haven't been able to you know go full steam ahead on certain certain elements so they're they're at the forefront as ready as anybody uh, Glickenhaus, who uh, Jim spoke to you, uh, Marshall, on your podcast and had some very interesting things to say about the timeline of his car. He's hoping to get his car, if I remember correctly, rolling out and testing at the same time as Toyota, which is in July, so shortly after the Mont 24 hours. But he's not 100% sure at this point whether he'll make the start of the season. As for Aston Martin, there is literally no news to talk about, certainly nothing other than rumour and speculation. I had a conversation with somebody at Aston Martin very recently for about an hour talking about various uh, bits and pieces, mainly to do with the status of the hypercar program. And it's clear from that conversation that they are sitting and waiting for the right time to tell news and to give updates on that program. The only thing they will say is that it's on track and progressing and work is happening. They will not give any details on how far they've gone down the line whether they'll get the car out for the first round of the season, which you assume would be a priority because it's the home race at Silverstone. We just don't have any details um, as of yet. And that doesn't necessarily mean because it's all a disaster. The way I've had it put to me is the fact that there is so much else going on, be it on the road car side, be it on the fact that their GTE program in WC is doing phenomenally well at the moment, leading the championship in both classes, that they just don't feel like now is the time to give out the news because uh, – you know, understandably, they're not quite as head of the curve as as Toyota. So, as for are we going to hear any more uh, in terms of who's going to commit next? That I think will come if it's going to come at all after the convergence talks finish. Whether we when we learn whether we're going to converge uh, DPI two point and hypercar, that's when you'll start seeing manufacturers making moves to commit or to step away. I think right now there's not. You know enough. We don't know enough um, about what that looks like uh, for anybody to jump in and say, "Yes, I'm going to do this." Because you know, for a manufacturer, if you're looking at it now, you're looking at the two platforms. Uh, you've got to say that if they do get, if there is convergence, DPI, as we understand, could be a lot cheaper of a solution. So, would you go and then do a hypercar program, which uh, you know many believe will be 10, 20 million more? Um, so until we know whether there is going to be that merger, you know there aren't going to be any decisions made, and that will affect manufacturers like McLaren. That will affect manufacturers like Porsche. Um, and I think there are certain people in, in behind Aston Martin's closed doors that would be not the most pleased people in the world if they did get convergence, because they will look at it and go, "Why are we spending all this money when we could just buy a effectively a P2 car?" do it up and run it with hypercars if it's all going to be balanced anyway. But that's another conversation. All that matters right now is convergence. Is it happening? Is it not? Until that happens, we're not going to hear any more. Second question uh, from Staffis was about LMP2 regs. The last thing we heard was when we had the announcement that they are indeed going to be slowed down to accommodate hypercar in the WC and then into the LMS. Um, we heard that the eligibility of the chassis had been extended by a year, which is very popular with the teams because they're not looking forward to uh, upgrading their cars or changing cars anytime soon. I mean, that's you know that's gone down very well. Everyone's satisfied. Uh, there isn't much movement in the P2 market in terms of people switching chassis too much anymore because 
pretty much everyone's racing with Orica. Um, and then most people are finding it, you know, a good experience right now. Budgets are, are pretty high, but overall, the general consensus, what we have right now is still a really good platform and they don't feel the need to change anytime soon. And because of that, because of that extension, it's bought the ACO some time to decide what they're going to do with LMP2 in the future and what that platform will look like. Um, I would assume from what I know that it will go out to tender and it will be a, a reasonably similar process to what we had before. But as for the manufacturers that will come forward and develop cars for the new LMP2 regulations, which don't yet exist as far as I'm aware, um, we just don't know yet. So we'll have to wait and see. As oh, Graham we got a hashtag. Let's wait yeah. and see. I love it. Graham oh, Goodwin you, is you here. Love the, the, you love the build up, Marshall. You loved ah. it. You were waiting. You were thinking, is he going to say it? And I'm like, yes, I am. It's 2020. I'm going to do what I like. Look at right. that. You are an emancipated youth. I love it. And I should <laughs> mention here uh, two things. And I haven't told anybody because it doesn't mean anything because truly they're more important things in life. But we are far away from what I've been wanting to get generated, and that is the official Marshall Pruitt podcast hashtag T-shirt, which has all of my favorite hashtags that we use on the show. Hashtag let's wait and see. Hashtag front nose. The king of them all. Hashtag me personally. Uh, we have hashtag breaking exclusive scoop. Hashtag spam fart. That's an IndyCar reference. Hashtag front splitter, hashtag spam, uh, a newish one, very specific, only used in one episode, but I loved it enough to where we had to carry it into a t-shirt, hashtag Lawrence Van Tour sex robot. Um, <laughs> and then the one that is probably my overall favorite, hashtag B.O. Penis, so uh, plus hashtag car car. So and again, hashtag let's wait and see. I mean, that's right there. So that t-shirt's coming soon. Look forward to the I need one of those. two poor souls who decide they actually want to have it. But <sighs> I'm so this is a proper opening episode of the year because we even though Graham wasn't here, you knew the weekend sports cars could not survive without a hashtag. Let's wait and see reference. So good on you, young Mr. Kilby. I'll also mention I have not entered into the convergence conversation in print so far because I have been waiting to hear some things that lead me to believe uh, it might be not real, but it might actually happen and also get some idea on what folks might be talking about. It should be. And so I have most of an opinion piece done. Not that what I have to say in this matters, but um, have an opinion piece almost done on if there's going to going to be convergence it needs to be one exact thing and if it's anything other than that exact thing it's going to fail so uh we'll see if that is worth its Uh, weight in garbage no i mean again it's probably a steaming pile of words with my name on it like most things but um yeah it's been you know we've had this scenario happen too many times in the u.s hey the french want to do something and we want to play together and then they don't so uh just been wanting to wait until i felt this is at a place where something positive could come out of it before weighing in so uh yeah we'll try and fart that out here hashtag spam fart that out here as soon as i can uh speaking of hashtag spam fart 
got about 20-ish minutes left, Mr. Kilby. Why don't I throw a few more in your direction? We're actually not that far from being done uh, with Weck Asm Elms Aco. We're going to go to Matej Pimper. If I mangled your name, I apologize. Who says, as the 2010s are in the history books, what was, in your opinion... I love that inclusion. Whenever you say in your opinion, compared to Stephen, in the opinion of Donald Trump, which was the best WC race of the decade? I had a little think about this, and my answer is going to be the 2016 running of the Spa Six Hours. That was a race that I will never forget, and actually going back and, and looking at my race report from that race, there are some parts of it that I'd completely forgotten. It was a remarkable race. Did you watch it, Marshall? Do you have any recollection of this race off the top of your head? Compared to off the back of my ass, maybe? Uh, yeah. I have to acknowledge something that I don't remember as many races as I should. So, Oh, I, I don't either. I'm completely don't. terrible at it. Um, so this race... I believe was the race where we wrote a feature on Daily Sports Car shortly after it, documenting the problem or incident that every single car had had during it. It was a six-hour race that was full of attrition, incidents, drama. Every single car had some sort of incident in that race that was significant. Uh, Audi won it. It was their first race of that year. Uh, Rebellion ended up on the podium with their uh, R13 because there was so much unreliability in the P1 hybrid ranks. And if I can find the paragraph, one of the most remarkable about um, things about this race was the number five Toyota completed the final lap of the race on just hybrid power to ensure that it finished classified um, and secure points for the championship. It was the first all-hybrid lap in the WEC because the car failed and they ended up switching it to hybrid mode and basically coasted on hybrid power for the entire final lap of, for the entire final lap of the race. It was an astonishing race, and obviously we've had Spa in the past coming season where we had well, sorry in the past season where uh, we had all sorts of weather chaos and snow and sleet and rain and then bright sunshine. That was memorable. But for me, the 2016 six hours of Spa was the one. That, that I'll always remember when I look back at this decade. I'll just throw this in quickly, Matesh. Uh, same 2016 year, but 24 hours of Le Mans. The Toyota heartbreak. Mm, that was the obvious one, but I didn't pick I, Le Mans purposely. I know, uh, and I know it's the obvious one, or I guess, to me at least, it's the obvious one. That, uh, I mean, the, the, the agony, the thrill of victory... The agony of defeat contained in a one and a half lap span. Just incredible. I've told this before and I'll just say it in 30 seconds, but I had filed my race report, uh, just the quick lead to Racer Magazine from the media center and sprinted out to run down with my photo to Bard and camera to get in and get into the uh, little pen for the photographers to shoot the podium. So just there's a, it's not a long distance, but there's just enough of a, a fight to get through a mass of people who are at the, the big gate being protected. Uh, so folks don't get onto pit lane. It takes a couple minutes to just have to fight through bodies. So 
knowing that we were two laps away from the finish. Like, I mean, this is done and it's salted. We're finished. Filed it away. Toyota epic first win. By the time I went down the little row, went down the stairs, got down and attempted to get through the gate in that 90 seconds, Stephen, uh, I watched the car fumble by in front of us, the leading Toyota fumble by in front of us and was just blown away, was trying to figure out what was going on. The crowd seemingly exploded and realized that, holy crap, uh, I need to revise my race lead here and also try and get photos of this. And, I mean, it was just crushing. It was just one of those things where you were convinced this is what it was going to be, and within 90 seconds and without having been, been able to see it happen in front of me but have to try and piece it together from crowd reaction, uh, it just, it's still so surreal. It was uh, remarkable. I, I remember my memory of that race is I, I'd written in the final hour of that because my job that year uh, on DSC was to write just uh, LMP stuff. I didn't do any GT, so I had the luxury of time in the final hour to write a bit of a piece. And I wrote borderline a thousand words on like how, you know, this is Toyota finally taking the win it's been working for for decades you know going all out into this amazing prose which i thought was going to be you know the perfect way to round off what had been a great race and then i just remember being tapped on the shoulder by one of my colleagues at dsc going you're not gonna believe this it's slowing and looking up at the screen and just seeing it slowing on the cameras and going no nah, no nah, it's just in a formation finish and like no, no no it's slowing and the whole press room just went no no, oh, not now. And this is partly because everyone's so tired and everyone had probably written exactly the same thing as me and you all go, oh my God, I've got to rewrite everything. I just remember basically deleting this document and just being quite almost angry. And it's the only time at a race meeting I've ever come close. Um, you went to, down and shouted oh, at the Toyota team, didn't you? You bastards, no, no, how no, no, dare no. you? It's only twice have I ever cried at a race meeting. The first time was uh, 2013 when Alan passed away. Um, and I borderline shed a tear at 2016 because I was so tired. It was one of those really tough Le Mans race weeks. And I really struggled that year to, you know, keep myself going. And it was just the despair of, I don't know what's going on. I can't believe this is happening. And I've got to rewrite everything. And I'm so tired because I barely slept that night. And I'm just watching this all unfold. And it's just like, oh, my God. God, I've got to write all this again. <laughs> it was all and so selfish, but I was so gutted for Toyota. And when the when the PR guys came into the room after the race, everyone was just like applauding them fine brightly, and they were just in tears and crying. And it was um, it was just a it was a weird experience. Well, I don't think we'll ever see that again, will we? It was I, so weird. I can't uh, can't believe it. All right. Uh... Boy, time is running out pretty quickly here. Uh, why don't we go to Chris Alfby's question as our final. It says, Multimatic, after Multimatic showed an image of a hypercar-esque Ford GT, is there anything either of you have heard or able to say that would see Ford almost committing to hypercar? It says, love the new Weekend Sports Cars logos and keep it up. Did you see that image, by the way, Stephen? Is, uh, 
it was it like in the back of a warehouse? It was this like a day or two ago or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, is that the Mark II, the one that was at Goodwood? I didn't really look look at it that closely. I was in the middle of lunch. I'm not entirely it. sure because there's a lot of cars at Goodwood. But, yeah, it just looked like an overgrown, more aggressive Ford GT compared to a hypercars type thing. That's um, the road-only version. I'm sure it was the one that I'm sure it went up Goodwood this year. But, anyway, carry on. Yeah. Uh, so any idea from your end of Ford on hypercar interest? Not much. I must admit it's from my, my understanding is of Ford, uh, is they're biding their time. And I would assume that Ford like a McLaren, if there is convergence would decide to do a DPI platform and race that elsewhere because of the budget. What do you think? There we go. I can't argue. Uh, well, let's go to what we'll just say 15 minutes starting now of general and fun. Why don't I, let's see. I'll take one here from Kyle Brown who says last episode, you discussed the high cost, uh, IMSA's keeping entries at this year's Rolex 24, uh, keeping high costs are keeping entries down at this year's Rolex 24 as I try and make word speak with my face. Uh, in previous episodes, you've also discussed how alter- alternative energy is important to entice manufacturers to IMSA and how uninspiring the low-tech Daytona prototypes were. Seems like a cash 22. Costs need to come down, but some manufacturers want expensive alternative energy on the cars, and fans want cars that aren't dumbed down, low-tech, and boring. If you woke up as John Doonan, how do you resolve these seemingly conflicting objectives? Here's the funny thing. Kyle, they're not conflicting. This is a case of overregulation. This is a case of if you try and pin the rules down so tightly where every single car is homologated, pick a technology, pick whatever it is within this very confined box that we allow you to work within, and then you can't change it, period, and you're done until the next formula you end up limiting the interest of manufacturers from coming and playing. Now, I realize we're talking prototypes here. Uh, I mean, on the GT front, this could this probably needs to open up as well. But we do have a scenario where, in the times where manufacturers were allowed to have more creative freedom, technological freedom, express future technologies, use motor racing as a platform to do that, we have gotten more manufacturers and or manufacturers spending more money enriching the series. And sometimes the teams, they hire drivers, they hire prosperity follows when things get super locked down and things go super low tech. And it's just about quote the racing and it's not manufacturer friendly so much. You tend to start to struggle at some point. Um, We also have the scenario now, which you mentioned Steven and others continue to mention we're in this in-between phase with DPI. Yeah, we're starting what? It's fourth season now. We are a couple years away from the new formula hitting in 2022. No one's going to want to come in. Uh, if anything, entries are coming down. Privateers are falling out of the formula. Or only the manufacturers or those, whether it's full works or works, semi-works, semi-supported, can play. You know. This is just a case where if a manufacturer is going to get money to do more interesting things, they need to have the ability to do 
more interesting things to go to their R&D division to say, give us money for the marketing department. Say, oh, yeah, there's this new thing we're going to do with next year's model. But, well, crap, <laughs> we're locked into this five or six or however many year formula and it's homologated and there's no ability for us to try and race that and promote that there and make this available to our teams and spend money with the series and buy television ads and sponsor races. So again, all these things are interrelated. I know the, the potential downfall, which we've seen happen many times is when things go unregulated. So there is certainly a balance from overregulated these days to unregulated where costs go insane. Manufacturers flame out because of those costs and the formula crashes. Just to me, the, the crazy thing here is we truly, Stephen, do have an entire field where every single car is homologated. You want to try a new dive plane on your prototype. Uh, you want to go to a new turbo on your GT Daytona car at a track where you think the sizing of that turbo would be beneficial based on the circuit configuration can't do it it just illegal you get thrown out of the race disqualified it that's just the antithesis of what sports car racing has been so um there just needs to be a a more relaxed but not overly relaxed approach kyle to letting manufacturers bring new ideas in because it's not like they only have them at the end of certain formula cycles right hey this is going to be a five-year formula great does that mean they're not going to come up with any ideas during those five years they might want to use in racing no but (laughs) the way we do things so well come back to us in a couple years you're just constantly taking away reasons for bigger better and more interesting things to happen so there's that where uh where should we go next in general steven hmm uh, I must say that Glickenhaus rant is pretty long, isn't it? Yeah, um, and, and I'll yeah that one I can say from, from Sean's page, I guess I'm not sure on the exact name, but basically said had Jim Glickenhaus on a podcast here shortly, and Sean went and looked things up, and Glickenhaus is basically a fraud, and uh, he should be called out for that, and all the things he's achieved are because they've been in some sort of exception class etc okay um where should we go next uh the, the Aston Martin dtm plans i can shed a tiny bit of light on that this is trd sanchez says what are Aston martin's plans for dtm in 2020 will they still even be the, in the series or will it perhaps be shelved focus more on wci dtc and the upcoming hypercar well the program was always an our motorsport project it was never really an Aston martin factory thing um it was a it was a separate uh, a separate program. I've heard from somebody I trust who's closer to DTM than I that we're, it's more likely to not be back in 2020. And if it isn't, then that's obviously a huge blow to DTM because we know that it's it's never easy in a series like that to survive on two manufacturers, um, particularly if both manufacturers haven't got long-term commitments to it. And we don't know what, what Audi and BMW would do if it did go down to two manufacturers um but i've heard and this might explain why aston martin wasn't present at the dream race with super gt 
uh, that that program will not continue. I don't know that for a fact, but I've heard from somebody I trust that it's looking that way. There we go. Okay, let me wander through some here. Where shall we go? Where shall we? We're going to go to fun. We're going to go to fun. Uh, here's a good one for you, Stephen. Mm. This comes in from a man, Ian Chicken. says, having now dragged myself down under a feat in itself, he says, on average, how many miles do you guys travel each year, and how do you cope with the constant time changes? That's more of a you thing than a me thing these days, Stephen. <sighs> I often ask myself the same question. It is genuinely hard. It is a really hard uh, part of this job. It's when not like alcohol, me, right? Where the more you drink, the more your body becomes acclimated to it and you, you're, you can withstand more, right? It takes more to get drunk. No, it's not like the more you travel, the more big time uh, change you, you go through. Sometimes. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's not one of those things where you can build up a tolerance. Yeah, it it's really tough when people ask me about my job and people do occasionally. Um, and it's a really hard question to answer because it's very easy to bore people to tears talking about writing about cars going round and round for 24 hours who are not interested in it. Um, but I often talk about the travel cause that is one of the most fabulous thing about my job. Uh, and that many people can relate to is the fact that I get to see different parts of the world and lots of people love to travel. Um, especially now with, you know, how commercial travel and long haul holidays have gone. Uh, it's really difficult. I can't stress enough that that is the hardest part of my job. It's not the writing. It's not doing a uh, podcast with you, Marshall. Uh, it's not, um, you know, staying awake during a 24-hour race. It's often the actual travel that comes around it because you're constantly in and out of packing and repacking a suitcase. You're constantly on the move. And you always, I always seem to be a week or 10 days away from my next travel, if not only a couple of days. And there have been times where I've done a trip where I've got back and on the same day of getting back, I've flown somewhere else. Uh, and it is really difficult. The tips that I've kind of developed that I would give anyone else who's doing a, a similar amount of travel and it's new to them. Uh, I take sleeping tablets on a plane every time I go on a plane because I try and sleep as much as possible on a plane. Um, I take Barocca tablets to get my vitamins up. I drink only water and the occasional cup of coffee. I don't drink fizzy drinks at all on trips anymore because it just it makes you feel worse. And just sleep whenever you can. Make the most of the sleep. Uh, you, you must know from doing something like Le Mans, Marshall, this is probably, probably the biggest one for you, isn't it? Flying over to do Le Mans race week. By the time you get to the end of that week, which is tough when you're on the same time zone normally or as we are an hour behind, to do it after traveling long haul is punishing. It's really punishing, isn't it? David Brabham had the best uh, bit of knowledge here. He said from all his years of travel, international travel, he'd learned that it, you adjust to a, the tune of about one hour per day of wherever it is you've headed. So in my case, flying from California to France, nine-hour time change, I'd often leave on the Friday, get in Saturday, late morning, early afternoon of scrutineering weekend, drive out to scrutineering. And so if you look at, again, the time frame, it's roughly nine, ten days. And so right about the time I'm due to fly home is when my body clock has adjusted uh, to that nine-hour time change. And, yeah, the thing I started doing or the thing I would do, and David also recommended, was just – Fight yourself the first night or two to stay up. 
and get on the normal, uh, you know, although your body is telling you it's totally different time, try and get on to that timeline of whatever place you're at the first night or two as best you can. So I'd usually be able to push until about 8 or 9 p.m. that uh, Saturday, that first Saturday night, maybe 8 or 9 p.m. the following night. And while I am not a fan of the fizzy drinks, I would actually, one thing I started doing was I'd have a fairly large um, drink bottle with me and would fill that with water and would also put in smallish amounts of a Red Bull or similar. So it wasn't this big, hard concoction of energy drink, but it was just something that as I'm drinking, uh, you know, fluids throughout the day, there was a little bit of help in there, just enough to try and stave off the conking over and and falling asleep immediately in a heap on the floor. So those are the couple Mm -hmm. things that I would do uh, or have done. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's it's a weird thing that we choose to do, but uh, this is the the one negative maybe that comes with it uh let's see where can we go here the last one or two as we say farewell to this episode uh let's go with james counter again james thank you for many great questions yes what's the most shameless self-promotion you've seen from a driver what about your colleagues uh this is a great one i like uh, this no um i really like this Gosh, I'm forgetting the kids. Dion Von Molka, and I don't know if shameless is the word. It was just way overplayed. I love the kid, by the way, so this um, I'm not being mean or critical of him so much, but he was invited to do a TED Talk, and it was just promoted as if Jesus had arisen and returned to Earth. And it was, <laughs> oh, my God, you know, and it was just this thing where you go, I love Dion talking about being a professional race car driver. The only slight flaw with that at the time is he was very young, so didn't have a lot of experience. And he wasn't a professional race car driver, was bringing sponsorship and paying for the opportunity to drive. Believe that that dynamic changed somewhat years later, where you know he was hired uh, to be the pro driver in a pro-am lineup type scenario, but it was just one of those things where you look at it and go, on the surface, if you knew nothing about this, you say, oh, this is great. If you actually knew stuff, you go, yeah, none of this is what it's being presented as. But, hey, that's a fun thing about uh, promotion and self-promotion. And he actually wasn't the one doing the PR for it. But, uh, yeah, there was that. I remember getting into a bit of a argument. I don't know if it was online or it might have been phone or it might have been both. But I just remember a long time ago, late 90s, early 2000s, getting a press release no, I don't know if it was a press re- I forget what it was. I might have seen the press release online that a guy that I knew by the name of Russ Wicks, who was a somewhat talented guy competing in American Junior Open Wheel, right, was never destined for IndyCar in terms of talent, but had, you know, done some of the races in the, in the training categories. I remember seeing a press release that he sent out saying, Russ Wicks to attend Canadian Grand Prix. And it just, it, it, Stephen, it just made me like go, it, it pissed me off. And I, I had no reason to, right? I mean, again, I've got nothing to invest in anything here, but it just, there's just something that felt so wrong about it. Not Russ Wicks to compete at an event at the Canadian Grand Prix. Russ Wicks to drive a Formula Atlantic car in warm up act for 
the one and only Formula One race in the great country of Canada. None of those things. Guy is going to a race is what the simplified headline should have read. (laughs) And I don't recall what the body of it was, but it was, again, it was more or less along those lines. And it just, it blew me away that Russ, all about the self-promotion, was thinking like, well, hey, better tell the world, man. I, that's right, I can afford a plane ticket. Woohoo! <laughs> and I'm going to get on a plane. And when I get there, that's right, I got the money to stay in a hotel. Even better, I'm going to go to a sporting event. Darn it. The world must know this thing. Um, I'll, I'll give me one my 10 cents on this off the top of my head it's not necessarily shame is self-promotion but it always makes me laugh and i think this is going to close the episode by the way so yes please please okay i won't name names but this will make you chuckle marshall there is a pr man who attends european races regularly who does pr for a variety of drivers and teams who turns up at racetracks with a fully branded jacket with his name on, a fully branded T-shirt with his name on, fully branded trousers with his name on, and race boots with his name on and his logos. How awesome is that? Don't you think? I, I bet he wakes up in the morning and thinks, God, I look sexy. Yeah. And his name is Stephen Kilby. Even better. No, don't get the cat out of the bag. Come on. Wow. Well, I need a photo of that. That, (laughs) I'll get you one. That would be absolutely amazing. Um, Yeah. Wow, that's good. Yeah, I mean, as for, you know. shoes. It's the next level for a person to just PR for an LMP3 team. Oh, now that's pretty (laughs) amazing. Yeah. Um, Oh, boy. I don't know. Uh, I Part of me wants to mention that I've seen one of our colleagues likes to push a promotion narrative that if you advertise with them, your brand will be seen by millions and millions of bots based on metrics. I don't know if that's a metric million or impure. Again, I, there's some maybe not truthiness in advertising there, but Hey, that's the fun thing, James, about self-promotion. You can kind of say whatever you want. We have the most listened to sports car podcast in the world. That is factual and accurate among all the sports car podcasts named the weekend sports cars. We're number one. I mean, there's, there's not a single other, the weekend sports cars that comes ahead of ours. So not first you lost Marshall. And we close with a Ricky Bobby truism. All right. As always, thank you for you and your great questions, dear, dear, dear listeners. Please send in the ones that we didn't get to that you want us to pontificate upon. I don't know, Stephen, if next week is going to be a repeat. We don't know if Graham will be allowed to leave Australia. We don't know what kind of laws he's going to violate while there. We don't know if he'll be awake for next week's show so this could be the two of us again my man thank you for making some time i believe you need to go make dinner though that's the priority in the household yeah while you're eating breakfast i actually haven't had breakfast so that's on the list here but my wife has so that's a good thing all right i am marshall pruitt that is Stephen kilby this is the number one rated the week in sports cars podcast on the planet possibly the only one as well thank you again to the justice brothers 
and Cooper Tires. And we will speak to you next week.